I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I've had in my heart for a number of months the, uh, the knowing of, the, well, the knowing that God wanted me to teach on the manifestations of the Spirit, what are typically called gifts of the Spirit. And I've just been kind of waiting for the right time, and I believe it's time. The, um, uh, there, there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, the main one is that I believe that there are things that God wants to do in us, in the church, in the earth, uh, for these last days, things that are prophesied, things that are told us in his word. And in order for us to work most effectively with him, we have to have some information. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But if we're going to believe for spiritual gifts or manifestations of the spirit, and I'll use those terms interchangeably. I, I really prefer what the way Paul said it, uh, which is manifestations of the spirit. But everybody knows these manifestations by gifts. And so kind of stuff with using the terms that everybody's familiar with. But... Um, if we're going to believe, if we're going to have these manifestations of the Spirit, we're going to have to exercise faith toward them. And since faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word, we're going to have to know what the Bible says about using them. This morning is going to be uh, kind of an introduction into uh, spiritual gifts or manifestations of the Spirit. And I want to talk to you about the purpose of them. But let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. I would submit to you that that's probably one of the greatest areas of ignorance in the body of Christ. But the Holy Ghost doesn't want us to be ignorant. And so he gave us information so that we wouldn't be. What we do with it is up to us. Now you'll notice if you're reading in the King James with me, you'll notice that the word gifts is in italics. Anytime you find a word in italics in the King James, it means the translators added it, trying to help us uh, gain understanding of what's being spoken of. Literally, this reads from the original Greek. Now, concerning spirituals, the word spiritual is in the plural. Brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You could readily understand that that wouldn't make much sense in the English language, so that's why they put the word gifts in there. But the word spirituals literally means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So this should literally read, and the reason it doesn't is because the, the King James is a transliteration which means it's as close to a word-for-word translation from the original Greek in the New Testament, the Hebrew and the Old, that, uh, that they could possibly get. So for the sake of brevity, they added the word gifts, but the most literal and accurate translation of verse 1 is now con- it would be, now concerning things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You'll notice in chapter uh, chapter 12, he didn't just talk about manifestations of the Spirit. He talks about other things that pertain to the Holy Ghost. He talks about in the first part of the chapter what we know of as spiritual gifts or manifestations. The middle part of the chapter, the biggest part of the chapter, he talks about the body of Christ. Why does he do that? Because it pertains to the Holy Ghost. And then the end of the chapter, he talks about ministry gifts or offices set in the church. Why does he do that? Because that pertains to the Holy Ghost. Now, the translators in this case, not always the case, but in this case particularly, in my opinion, did an excellent job in the place that they ended the chapter because chapter 12 concerns things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Then he starts talking about love in chapter 13 and um, then talking about some of the use of spiritual manifestations in chapter 14. Now, remember who he's writing to. And it's, I think it's significant to recognize that uh, the most complete list of manifestations of the Spirit that Paul gives us is here in this chapter, the 12th chapter written to the Corinthians. He, uh, he alludes to some things and gives us some other lists in other places, but this is very specific because it deals with a specific issue that's taking place in Corinth. Now, the Corinthians are perhaps exclusively Gentile, there is uh, little, almost no mention made of, uh, of Jewish, uh, a Jewish presence in, this, in the church in Corinth. And as a result, these people have come out of pagan worship, idol worship, 
as we talked in the, about some of the historical documents in the series that we did on the seven letters to churches in Asia from uh, Revelation, <clears throat> we know a little bit about what they've done and where they've come from and who they've worshipped and how that worship goes. As a matter of fact, it's the first thing that Paul mentions when he talks about manifestations or things pertaining to the Holy Ghost. He says in verse 2, You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols even as you were led. Now, dumb idols, I don't know if he means stupid idols or if he means non-speaking idols. Both apply. Actually, it's the word non-speaking idols. But he's referring one, uh, first and foremost, to the difference between how God moves by the Holy Ghost and what they're accustomed to. We've seen in, uh, in some of the other churches and some of the other cities, uh, when we were studying that, uh, that, in that series on the seven letters, we've seen that they were involved in different types of worship, uh, or the, maybe I should say it this way, the worship of other gods and other idols manifested itself in different manners, different ways. But in some of, the, some of the ways that people had been accustomed to worshiping, they were used to giving themselves over to drug-laced wine and things that would alter their, uh, well, if not their mental capacity, certainly their understanding, their senses. And as a result, many times in these idol worship services or events, people would speak out because they had given themselves over to demonic powers. And so they were used to familiar with the manifestation of what they thought were these idols that they were worshiping. We know that it was evil spirits in operation. And so Paul talks about, first and foremost, he talks about the difference between how God works and how the devil works. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols even as you were led. Wherefore, I give give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying nobody operating under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost would ever speak against Jesus or do anything, say or do anything other than magnify Jesus as being Lord of of all. Because in in their services, apparently that's what was happening. Otherwise, Paul would have no need to address it. But apparently people would come in and, and there's, a, there's something to, that we need to take notice of. The devil always tries to counterfeit what God does. Well, what does God do? The first thing Paul makes mention of is the devil's attempt in the vocal gifts to counterfeit what God is inspiring to be done. In other words, people would come in and in the midst of someone speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost... Someone else would speak by the inspiration of the devil, one of these manifestations of evil spirits, and say that Jesus was cursed or Jesus wasn't the Son of God or whatever. He goes further and says, and no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now, don't take that out of context. A lot of people will say that, that, uh, you know, they'll try to corner the devil and identify the devil by whether or not somebody can say Jesus is Lord. Well, that's dumb. Anybody operating out of their mind can say anything they want to, whether they mean it or not. He's talking about when, the, when the, this thing is in manifestation. He's talking about when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation, he'll always draw attention to and magnify Jesus as Lord. But he's saying when an evil spirit's in, magnif- in manifestation, someone speaking by one of these dumb, idle spirits, he's never going to be able to say that Jesus is Lord. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Why would that be the case? Evil spirits cannot magnify Jesus as Lord because that's the way to salvation. It's not open to them. So where he says no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost, he's talking about anyone from their heart that confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior is an operation of the Holy Ghost because that's the manner or the means to be saved. Now you could have somebody that's unsaved you could bring them to every prayer room in town and have them say certain words. And if they didn't say it from their heart, it wouldn't make any difference what they said. 
So he's talking about when these things are in manifestation. So he says, no man can call Jesus cursed by the Holy Ghost and nobody can say Jesus is Lord from his heart, but by the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that? Because the reason that we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior to be saved is because the Holy Ghost reveals it to our hearts. Then he starts talking about manifestations of the Spirit. He says, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now, there's two ways to look at this, two schools of thought on this. One is that there are specifically three things that Paul makes mention of and talks about as pertaining to the Holy Ghost in chapter 12. Manifestations of the Spirit, the body of Christ, and spiritual gifts, or I'm sorry, ministry gifts, or ministry offices. Some people say that the gifts, administrations, and the operations pertain to those three things. And, they, and, and you make a good argument for that. In other words, they're saying that the, that the um, diversities of the gifts are the manifestations of the Spirit. The differences of administrations would be the ministry offices that he closes the chapter with. And the diversities of operations would be the body of Christ, talking about the members being different but working together. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? But another school of thought, the other school of thought, which you can make just as good an argument for, is that these three things he's talking about have to do with manifestations of the Spirit. Of this list of nine manifestations, a certain number of them are gifts, a certain number of them are administrations, and a certain number of them are operations. Now, you can make an argument for that because manifestations of the Spirit work differently at different times and sometimes through different people. In other words, you can have the word of knowledge come by just simply God speaking to someone, or the word of knowledge can work through a vision. Word of knowledge can work through in connection with discerning of spirits. So they can work differently in different ways. Sometimes differently through the same people, sometimes differently through different people. So you can make an argument for it either way. I think it, it's said in such a way so that it means both. But then he goes further and tells us what the purpose of the manifestations of the Spirit are for. He says, but the manifestation of the Spirit, again, this is verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. In other words, with all means for everybody to benefit. For everybody to benefit. Now, folks, I would submit to you that most of the time people that want to be used by the Holy Ghost and the greatest zeal for the, for the operation of the Spirit of God in the church today is so that it draws attention to the person being used. Thank you for your enthusiastic support. <laughs> and the first thing that Paul talks about, or one of the first things that he talks about, relative to the manifestation of the Spirit is that the manifestation of the Spirit of God, these nine manifestations that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks, are given for everybody to benefit, not for the person to be used, that's being used to be benefited, not for the person that's being used to have attention drawn to him or her. Not so that people can think they're great and mighty and, and a great person of God. But so that everybody is benefited. One of the first things Paul identifies about the manifestation of the Spirit of God. Is that the Spirit of God manifests himself to draw us together. Not to separate somebody out. Now let me prove that to you. He talks about the body of Christ beginning in about... Uh, Oh, verse 12, I guess. Down through verse 27. He talks about the body of Christ. And let's start reading. And we don't want to read the whole thing. But let's start picking up in um, verse 23. It says, And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable. We always have our own ideas about who's worth more than somebody else. Those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism. This is the word lack. 
that there should be no schism or lack in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. What's he saying? He's saying that the things pertaining to the Holy Ghost are supposed to and intended to result in this, so that everybody is benefited. There is no lack in the body. There's nobody left out. Nobody left out. Let's look a little bit further. Turn with me over to uh, chapter 14 and verse 12. He said, even so you, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, again, this word gifts is in the italics. It's the same word used over in chapter 12, verse 1. Even so, for as much as you are zealous of spirituals, things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. You know what Paul's underlying theme is when it comes to manifestations of the Spirit? The underlying theme is this. God will manifest himself by the Holy Ghost to help us in any and every way. Now, what does that mean? Well, he says in chapter 13, verse 1, to, be, to uh, desire spiritual gifts. Follow after love and desire spiritual gifts. He tells us in chapter 14, verse 12 that we just read there, even as much as we're zealous of spiritual gifts, things pertaining to the Holy Ghost, seek to excel to the edifying of the church. In other words, he means this. He means first and foremost, the body of Christ ought to be considered, ought to consider itself a family. For example, if there are members of our church family that are sick, if there are members of our church family that are infirmed, what should our prayers be? Oh, God, use me. Or, oh, God, help them. See, this is one thing that I think the devil uses modern times and and uh, accelerates activities and so forth to get us away from. I hear, well, have heard, don't hear anybody talking about it anymore, but Brother Hagin used to talk about churches that he had pastored back in the 30s, 1930s. And um, up into the 40s, he spent 12 years pastoring uh, several different churches. And he said over those 12 years... He said he would develop prayer groups in the church where if anybody was sick, the church would attack it. I mean, they'd pray and pray and pray until somebody got well. And it wasn't just small, minor stuff either. There's some real serious things that, that people were prayed out of. And Brother Hagin credited the few times, he said, of those uh, times where people were sick during those 12 years, he said there were only a couple of occasions where the Holy Ghost manifested himself most of the time those people were prayed for and, and ministered to by the word and healed. But he said the few times that they were, that there were manifestations of the spirit to bring about their healing or the deliverance, whatever it was that they needed. He said he credited that to the prayers of the church. Now think about how different that is from most of the prayers that take place today. Most of the time we're praying God use me because I will need something to make a name for myself. And nobody comes out and says that. Don't misunderstand me. Nobody's praying God make a name for me. But most of the times that people are praying for God to use them, that's what they want. Lord, use me so that everybody will see that I'm your favorite. Lord, use me so that everybody will see I've got the power. Lord, use me so that we can have a bigger crowd. Now, nobody says that. But it's pretty obvious that that's the attitude. It's pretty obvious from people's preaching that that's what they're after. That's not what God wants these things to be used for. And for that reason, the Bible says the Spirit of uh, God, the, the manifestations of the Spirit are divided to every man severally as he wills. It doesn't say to every minister severally. It says to every man severally. Now, the word severally is an interesting word because it means two things. It means specific and it means more than one. The majority of the manifestations of the Spirit of God, if we're to understand Paul as being as instructed by the Holy Ghost to tell us what he tells us, the majority of the manifestations of the Spirit 
in a church body, in our church congregation, should be happening through you, not me. And not just in public services. See, we've... I think it's part of the culture of the day. But we pretty much boiled down church to just when we get together during church services. That's pretty much what church means nowadays. Well, that's not what God means when he says church. When God says church, he means his family. And he's got a family 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not just when we have church services, not when the doors of the church building are open. It's supposed to be about a church family. And when Jesus told us that we were members of his body, when the Holy Ghost told Paul to write to the church and say that we're members of his body and members one of another, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about we should have the same care for each other because we're part of his family, part of the same family of God that we have for ourselves. Now, you don't have to tell somebody to pray when they get sick. And that's automatic. But why is it so difficult to get other people to pray for those who are sick? Because we're caught up in our own stuff. Because our own things are more important to us than helping one another. And you know how that works as far as your close family is concerned. If you've got a cousin that's sick, you may think to pray about them every now and then. But if you've got a son or a daughter that's sick, that's first and foremost on your mind. Well, why is that? Because we consider family to be those that are closest to us. God wants us to consider the church membership, our church family, to be those that are closest to us. And if we did that, I believe there'd be a lot more manifestations of the Spirit to help. There's no greater need in Paul's day for the manifestation of the Spirit or in the church in Corinth than there is today. And I think that's one thing that the the, uh, church world has erred in And it's one of the things that has lended the idea to much of the church world that God doesn't do this stuff anymore. The day of miracles or the age of miracles is past. God doesn't heal like he did when Jesus was here on the earth. Many people even will take this list of nine manifestations of the Spirit and they'll take the supernatural out of them. They'll say, well, diversity of tongues may have been important in in the early days of the church. But now people know and understand and can study different languages, so we don't need that. We don't need the word of knowledge anymore because, and many people even call it the gift of knowledge, because we have the Bible. We're able to study the Scripture now, so we have the gift of knowledge instead of the way that it worked back then. Well, folks, first and foremost, if any of these are supernatural, then they all have to be. If any of these are not supernatural, then none of them can be. And Paul is talking about a supernatural operation of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost doesn't change. He's part of the Godhead who never changes. So if he once did this, he's still able to do it now. If he once wanted to do that, to manifest himself in this nine different things, then he still does today. Well, if he wants to, Pastor Mike, why doesn't he? I think we've forgotten that we're family. Because of all the problems that this group had, they were family. And they had a lot of problems. Another thing that Paul writes concerning the importance of not being ignorant of things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. This church was way out of what we would consider to be way out of order. They had, uh, well, let me say it this way. The manifestations of the Spirit that they had. And Paul said in chapter 1 verse 7. He said they come behind in no good gift. So we have to assume. That that means they had all the manifestations of the Spirit in operation. But it wasn't benefiting the church. 
it wasn't growing the church. In fact, it was causing the way they were operating in these things was causing the, the, uh, the unbelievers, the people of the city, to come in. I'm sure they heard of a lot of things. If they came behind a no good gift, then that means they had healings. That means they had miracles. That means they had a lot of spectacular things, not just supernatural. And that always draws people's attention. But the people that would come in from the outside wouldn't be added to the church because of the operation, because of their lack of knowledge, their ignorance, they meaning the church at Corinth, because of their ignorance of how these things are supposed to work and what they're supposed to produce. The unbelievers would come in and see how they operate and say, these people are crazy. Can't deny the miracles they're having, but they're crazy. And Paul tried to correct that. Now, what's interesting to me is that Paul never said, now look, there's a trade-off. You're having miracles, you're having healings, you're having all these kinds of things, that's good. But you need to reach people, so you have to tone down the other stuff. You've got to give up the supernatural. You've got to give up the miracles. You've got to give up the healings so that you can reach the world. He never said that. In fact, he gave direction to them so that their healings and their miracles and their other spectacular things would have a greater impact so that they would reach the world. So he's not saying that you've got to tone it down so that you can reach the lost, which is what a lot of the church world seems to want to do. Let's just don't talk about the spectacular stuff. Let's don't talk about the supernatural. Let's don't talk about tongues. Let's don't have any of that that the world thinks that the, the, the world thought they were crazy for. Let's make sure to stay away from that so that we can reach the world. Paul never said that. In fact, Paul said, if you'll get a little direction and some understanding of what these things are supposed to produce and how they're supposed to operate, then the world will be assimilated into you, into the church, one into the kingdom of God. Folks, I would submit to you very simply that if preaching and teaching is going to reach the world, we'd have reached it already. Well, why isn't the church world at large winning the world, winning the lost? Why have we not reached the world? Very simply, the pattern that we see from the early days of the church is the world was reached by the supernatural and the miraculous. The body of Christ without the miraculous is just a philosophical entity as far as the world is concerned. Because the world responds, the unsaved respond to the supernatural. Now Paul talked about these things, trying to correct the church. Turn me over to chapter 14. Notice what Paul said to the church at Corinth. I'll start again in verse 12. It says, even so you, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, Seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore? To accomplish this. Wherefore? Let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else... When thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned to say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing that he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. Thou verily givest thanks well. In other words, he's saying speaking in tongues is a good way to magnify God. It's a good way to give thanks. But the unbeliever, the unlearned, is not edified. Skip down with me in verse... Uh, 23 if therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers will they not say that you are mad the word mad here means crazy should be a great revelation to some Pentecostals that God does not want the world to think that they're crazy and folks that's one thing that kept me out of out of Pentecost for a while because the Assembly of God Church, the only one that I knew of that spoke in tongues in my town, was a crazy bunch of people. And I didn't want anything to do with that crazy bunch. 
I didn't want to be associated with them. I didn't want anybody to think that I was crazy like them. It hindered me. Verse 24, but if I'll prophesy and there comes in one that believes not or is unlearned, he is convinced of all and he is judged of all. Now, what's the difference? What does the Bible say is the difference? We'll talk about this at length when we get to it. But what does the Bible say the difference is in speaking with tongues and prophesying? Speaking with tongues is supernatural utterance in a language unknown to the hearer. I'm sorry, unknown to the speaker. Speaking with tongues is a supernatural utterance given by the Holy Ghost in a language unknown to the person talking. Prophecy is supernatural utterance given by the Holy Ghost in a language that's known to the speaker, the one doing the talking. So the only difference or the difference between the two is not the supernatural part. The difference between the two is whether or not you know the language God's given you utterance in. That's it. That's the only thing, the only difference. Paul says, greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongue unless or except he interprets. Interpretation of tongues is supernatural interpretation by the Holy Ghost of that which was spoken in tongues. So tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy because it brings understanding of the supernatural utterance that the Holy Ghost has given. So Paul says, for for that reason, it's kind of like the difference between two nickels and a dime. Tongues is a nickel, interpretation is a nickel, and prophecy is a dime. Prophecy is greater than the tongues or interpretation alone, but you put tongues and interpretation together and it equals prophecy because it brings understanding to what the Holy Ghost is trying to, is given utterance to say. So Paul says, greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks in tongues, except or unless he interpret too. Because then it brings understanding. So Paul says, if all prophesy, speaks in a language that, the, that everybody can understand, and there comes in one that, is believed, that believes not, that's the unbeliever, or one unlearned, that's the believer who doesn't know. He is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying manifestation of the spirit. He singles out tongues and interpretation versus prophecy. But it really applies to all of them. Manifestations of the spirit is supposed to reveal people's hearts. It's supposed to reveal the secrets of their own hearts. There are some people that come to church you're not going to reach by preaching. There are some people that come to church you're not going to reach by teaching. You're not going to reach through your prayer. There are some people that are only going to be reached by God revealing the secrets of their hearts. Now remember the Holy Ghost is inspiring Paul to tell the church these things. Which means God wants, the Holy Ghost wants, he manifests himself according to his will. His will, not ours. The Holy Ghost wants to reveal the hearts of people. To them, not to us, not to somebody else. But he wants to reveal the secrets of a man's heart to cause him to know that God and only God could be the one doing this. Yet we've tried to preach preach our four-point sermon and reach the world. How are you going to reach the world when you don't know what the secrets of a man's heart are? That's the benefit of the supernatural. And God wants to do these things. It's not that we want him to and he won't. Which most Christians and most churches seem to get the idea that that's the way it is. It's not that we want it more than he wants it. He wants it more than we do. But remember chapter 13 is right in the middle of chapter 11 and 14. Or chapter 12 and 14. In the Baptist church, we'd come to 1 Corinthians, read chapter 11, read chapter 13, read chapter 15. Somehow or another, Paul just got off track in chapter 12 and chapter 14. But why does he put chapter 13, which is the great love chapter, why does he put chapter 13 right in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14? Because these things work by love. 
That doesn't mean I have to love you to operate in the Holy Ghost. That means the Holy Ghost won't manifest himself unless the motive behind or it, well, I'm going to have to back up. I just said something not true. Sometimes the Holy Ghost does manifest himself when there's no love in operation. That's not the way he wants it to be. He wants our love for one another. Our desire to see somebody else helped that needs help. He wants that to be the motivating factor behind our prayers. He wants that to be the motivating factor behind our church services. He wants that to be the motivating factor behind everything. The world's going to know us by our love. But much of the world is not going to be reached unless, they, unless they're affected by the supernatural or impacted by the supernatural. So how does love fit in there? Well, if we love people enough to pray for the Holy Ghost to help them, to manifest himself according to his will, the way that he wants to do it, not so that we can make a name for ourselves, then that's how the family can be drawn together, pull for one another, and help each other. There are people in our church family that need help. There are people in our church family that are not going to be healed just by hearing the word. There are people in our church family that are not going to be healed on their own praying. Doesn't mean they couldn't be. But for whatever reason, and I don't know the reason in every case. I might know sometimes, but not always. But there are some people that are going to be healed only by a manifestation of the Spirit. I don't believe that ever has to be the case. But sometimes it is. So what do we do? Do we come get our rocks and throw stones at the people that are in that case? Do we try to find fault with them? Well, if you just knew how to believe God, you'd get your healing. Or do we help one another? Or do we pray that the Holy Ghost would manifest himself for their benefit? Not just so that we get a thrill. What are we going to do? When the Bible says concerning the glory of God in the last days. It says the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of God. As the waters or the knowledge of his glory. As the waters cover the sea. How is that possible if love is not the dominating force? How is that possible if love is not the motivating factor? How is that going to be possible? Is God going to say, well, you know, I wanted everybody to walk in love, but we'll just forget that and look over that. The time is short, so I'll just do my thing and y'all can reap the benefits. Does anybody really think that's the way it's going to work? No. So what's the first and foremost, the foundational key for the manifestation of the Holy Ghost? Our love for each other. And please notice that the biggest part of chapter 12 is about the members of the body of Christ working together. And those are things pertaining to the Holy Ghost. Those are things pertaining to the Holy Ghost. Turn with me over to Zechariah chapter 10, please. Zechariah chapter 10 is something that the Lord has had us praying for years. I've prayed it. I learned to pray it from Brother Hagin back in 1981. Before that, I don't even know if I knew that there was a book of Zechariah in the Bible. Certainly never read it if if I knew it was there. I'm sure I learned it in the list of things in the Baptist church when I grew up. List of books of the Bible, you know. But I never read it. If I had read it, I wouldn't have understood it. But the Bible talks about another place in the Old Testament in uh, Amos. It talks about the Holy Ghost coming to us as the rain, the early and the latter rain. Well, as a result, Brother Hagin tied those verses of Scripture together one night in a prayer meeting in 1981 and said that the Lord had impressed upon him, and I guess he'd been doing it for years, but specifically at that time, the Lord had impressed upon him that we should pray. We mean the people, the students at, uh, at Rhema that came to the evening prayer meeting. 
that we should pray for the rain. And so he read chapter 10, verse 1 of Zechariah. Ask you of the Lord rain, and he explained that that was a moving of the Holy Ghost. Ask God to move by the Holy Ghost in the time of the latter rain. Well, folks, that was 35 years ago. We're 35 years closer into the time of the latter rain. Now, when the Bible says that the Holy Ghost comes to us as the early and the latter rain, he's specifically saying that it's the plan and the purpose of God. Now, this has an agricultural context because of the, in, in Israel, crops don't grow without an early rain that soaks the ground at the time of planting and a latter rain that brings about the harvest. And that's the example that he uses for the moving of the Holy Ghost. And so there is a time for a latter rain. At the end of days, just before Jesus comes back, there's a time for a moving of the Holy Ghost. It's set. It's going to happen. The Holy Ghost will move in a great and mighty way to bring about the precious fruit of the earth. James 5, 7 says this. It says, be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Well, we have to be patient because he hadn't come yet, right? Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, Jesus, is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. Now, the only thing Jesus cares about is people. So the precious fruit of the earth has got to be the end time harvest, the last day harvest. He's the husband who waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. In other words, the only thing that's going to bring about that last day harvest is the moving of the Holy Ghost in the last days. Now, how's the Holy Ghost going to move? Well, is he going to forget the rest of the Bible? Is the Holy Ghost going to say, well, it's time to move now. It's time for the last day harvest. So forget about that manifestation of the Spirit stuff. The way that I told Paul and told the church that I would manifest myself. And I'll just do something different. I'll just do whatever I want. Well, of course not. So in Zechariah chapter 10 where it says, ask the Lord rain. In the time of the latter rain, he's saying, ask for the manifestations of the Spirit. Because everything the Holy Ghost does really comes down to those nine manifestations of the Spirit in one way or another. Everything. And that's why Paul gave us a complete list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1, ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. He's saying, be zealous of spiritual gifts. Pray for spiritual gifts. Pray for the moving of the Holy Ghost. Pray for the moving of the Holy Ghost in the time of the latter rain. Now, I wish the Bible says, you know, on such and such a date at such and such a time was the, was the time so that we would know exactly. But we don't. But Paul said, Paul wrote to the church 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago now, that those were the last days. Well, if those were the last days, what are these? Paul considered himself to be in the time of the latter rain. Then where are we? We have to be further in that same time. Don't we? Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. I believe we're praying at the right time. Well, what's going to happen if we do that? So the Lord shall make bright clouds. The word bright clouds is the word lightnings. Now, why did they translate it bright clouds? Because it's talking about the glory of God. Remember, God appeared to Israel in the Old Testament in the glory cloud. Remember when they uh, dedicated Solomon's temple, it said the priest couldn't stand to minister by reason of the cloud. Now, what was it? It was a manifestation of God's presence and a display of his power. So if we ask for a moving of the Holy Ghost in the last days, he'll manifest his presence and display his power. And notice what else it says, and give them showers of rain. Now, what's a shower of rain? It's an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. What is an outpouring of the Holy Ghost? How could it be an outpouring of the Holy Ghost and not be one of the nine manifestations of the Spirit? It has to be. 
Or else how would the Holy Ghost manifest himself? How would the Holy Ghost pour himself out? Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds, a manifestation of his presence, and a display of his power, and give them showers of rain, outpourings of gifts of healings, outpourings of the word of knowledge, outpourings of the word of wisdom, outpourings of prophecy, outpourings of discerning of spirit, outpourings of tongues and interpretation. Outpourings of gifts of healings. Here's what the Holy Ghost said that he would do. The Holy Ghost inspired these words, didn't he? So he said, in the last days, you pray for me to move. And here's what I'll do. I'll manifest myself, the presence of God. I'll put on display the power of God. And I'll pour out of myself in these nine manifestations of the Spirit. To what end? To everyone, grass in the field. And what's the grass in the field? It's got to be the same precious fruit of the earth that James 5, 7 says the latter rain brings. Last day harvest. Last day harvest. I believe we're coming to a day, I believe we've been living in a day, but coming closer and closer to the end puts us in a position for the Holy Ghost to manifest himself if we learn to cooperate with him. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that God works through the body. Meaning you won't work independently of it. The Holy Ghost is not going to work independently of Jesus. Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. Well, who is Jesus here on the earth? The church. So that means the church is going to have to be in cooperation. That means the church is going to have to know what to expect. That means the church is going to have to know how to work together with the Holy Ghost so that the work of God can be accomplished. God's not going to do it independently of the church or separate from the church. He's going to work through the church. Well, then the church is going to have to know what to do, aren't we? If the Holy Ghost appeared right now in visible form and said, I want to work with you if you'll just learn to cooperate with me, and then disappeared. Well, after everybody's goosebumps went down, what would we do next? What would we do? Well, you'd have some people stand up, puff out the chest and say, I know what to do. And they probably wouldn't. But for the most part, the church would be sitting around looking at each other and saying, what now? I, I, I want to. I want to work with God, don't you? I want to cooperate with anything and everything he's got for us. But what do we do? Folks, the only instruction that we have about the manifestation of the Spirit is what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. There had to be a reason for the Holy Ghost to save that for us. You know, he didn't save every letter that Paul wrote to the Corinth. Paul talks about a letter that was lost. He talks about a letter that discussed things that we don't have record of. But the Holy Ghost saved this one for us. I believe there's one primary reason that he saved this letter. And that is it tells the church how to cooperate with the moving of the Spirit. Much more so than any other place in the Bible. We're going to talk about this stuff. We're going to talk about what the manifestations of the Spirit are. We're going to talk about how they work. We're going to see Bible examples. We may give you other examples that line up with Scripture. We're going to talk about how to cooperate with the Holy Ghost. We're going to talk about the importance of praying for the rain. Amen. How many of you want to see God move in these last days? Guess who that depends on? Not God. God's already told us what he'll do. It depends on us. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you are willing to do whatever it takes to cooperate with him? Didn't get as many hands on that one. That's the key. Let's all stand together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for directing us in the manner that you have. I thank you for the foundation that we've laid in this church for 30 years.
the foundation of the word. I believe everything that we've done comes to this place, Father. I believe we're now in a position to work with you more effectively than we ever have been before. I ask you, Father, that you would prepare our hearts over the next several weeks. That you would prepare our hearts, not just in church services, but in every day of our lives. Stir in us, Father, a desire to be used of God. Stir in us a desire to see the manifestation of the Spirit of God. Not for ourselves, not to tickle our fancy, but to help those that need help. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for utterance in advance to speak the things that are needful and necessary for the people to hear. But Father, more than ever before, I'm trusting you to speak to our own hearts, the hearts of each and every person, to show us individually how you want us to be used of you. Show us, Father, how the Holy Ghost can manifest himself and wants to manifest himself in each one of us for the benefit of others. I thank you, Father, for the miraculous being done among these people. I thank you, Father, for the spiritual growth and development it shall bring to us, the confidence that it will stir in us to know you and to trust you in a greater way. I thank you for giving each person in this church a boldness to step out and act on what the Holy Ghost gives them to do. I thank you, Father, for helping us reach the world. In Jesus' precious name. Everybody that can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Amen.